The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. 20 years ago this week, a momentous event 156 years in the making finally took place. The handover of Hong Kong to China. The world was transfixed. For the first time, before or since, loomed the peaceful handover of a capitalist economy to a communist regime. Would China maintain the rule of law as Beijing promised? Uphold Hong Kong's freewheeling ways and unfettered stock market among the largest in Asia? Those were the kind of issues that dominated headlines around the world. And the journalist's gift was sure to keep giving, right? Wrong. Right region. Wrong country. I mean, sorry, special administrative region. Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Malcolm Scott in Hong Kong. And you're right, Dan. Just one day after Prince Charles sailed out of Hong Kong Harbour, financial calamity erupted in Bangkok and proceeded to ripple through Indonesia, South Korea and eventually Russia and Brazil. It was the first truly global financial crisis of the modern era and in retrospect a harbinger of things to come in the US. Today Dan and I take stock of the Asian financial crisis and the lessons we learned or the ones that we ignored to our peril. Why is it that these crises keep erupting? Are disruptions such as the 2008 US mortgage implosion the inevitable consequence of a capitalist market system? Joining us are Bloomberg journalists who covered the Asian financial crisis as it unfolded, starting with that fateful decision by Thailand to stop defending its currency, the baht. I watched the baht's implosion from next door in Malaysia. Let's introduce the rest of the panel. Alec McCabe reported on the region extensively uh, from Hong Kong, former Hong Kong bureau chief, reminds us, was born in Hong Kong, Lee Miller, bureau chief in Bangkok at the time. And Malcolm, you are now a managing editor for Asia Economics based in Hong Kong. Well, let's put this in some sort of context. Remember, Asia's relationship with the West was very different 20 years ago. It was the era of the tiger economies, Nations that had suffered economically since the end of the Vietnam War not only regained their footing, were poised to remake themselves, and in some instances had, as low-cost manufacturing powerhouses. It was around this time we began to shed the phrase third world country in favour of less developed nation, a subtle but powerful hint of a new respect for Asia. So when Thailand surrendered its currency, it was as if the first spider web of cracks had appeared in the new narrative. Let's listen in as Alec interviews economist David Roche one week after Thailand's decision. Thailand's decision to float its currency, the baht, has big implications for other Asian countries. Joining us in Hong Kong is David Roche. He's the president of Independent Strategy for a look at what lies ahead for Thailand and post-handover Hong Kong. Thanks for being here today. It's nice to be here again. There are implications, of course, because um, in any 
uh, area like this, if one country changes a currency regime which is not that different to the general rules of the game out here, then obviously everybody is affected. And the big theory is that you get a domino effect, this time in finance rather than in military matters. So, Alec, again, you were reporting for Bloomberg in Hong Kong at the time. It really did seem like the biggest thing ever, right? Oh, it was. And it had been so in the minds of journalists for months, if not years, we'd been preparing for this. Um, the most, the hippest club in Hong Kong for all those years, Club 97, marking the 1997 handover. We had invested all sorts of resources, we and the world's press, to be there. And maybe it was just because I was born in Hong Kong and my kids were born in Hong Kong. But for me, it was a very personal handover. And in some ways, because China was taking over peacefully a capitalist society for the very first time in the world, this was happening, a peaceful transfer of power was happening. It seemed like this was the moment for Asia to step up to the world stage and really start leading the world economically and perhaps politically as well. You know, it's one of these situations where an event that has been curtain-raised, choreographed for such a long time happens, and yet something seemingly small uh, in a very different type of place ends up being the big thing. And that event that had been prepared for for more than a decade all of a sudden just didn't seem that important. It didn't. And, and Lee, you were in Bangkok a day. Was it a day or two days after the, the handover? It was the next day, actually. It was July 2nd, 1997. So, um, you know, we were all caught a little bit unprepared. We had seen things kind of melting down rather quickly in Thailand. But the way, when the, the devaluation was announced, and they used some obtuse phrasing, but when we realized what it was and we sent the first headline, you know, we were just like, wow, this is not the handover of Hong Kong. This is something big. And this is kind of the meltdown of a single economy. And then not long after that, you know, Dan was uh, working south in Malaysia. I think that you probably felt the jolt coming from Thailand. Well, you know, my parents were visiting me in Kuala Lumpur at the time, and we had watched the handover on TV the night before. So, we slept in, and I got a call from my colleague in the office, called me at home, and he said, Thailand's just let the BART go, and everything's going nuts. Can you come in? And the interesting thing about that at the time was, you know, Thailand had been the world's fastest-growing economy from something like 1987 to 1994. So, you know, that was before China became the world's fastest-growing economy. And so we saw this tremendous boom going on. Alec was talking about the brand of, of nightclubs and everything. At one point, I think... Thailand became the world's second largest market for Johnny Walker Black Label whiskey. <laughs> and so, so I mean, you know... You, what was the first? Uh, the U.S., I think. You don't expect things to, to melt down so quickly because, you know, even, even to the point where Herod's uh, department store in London actually started putting signs up in Thai, because so many Thais had money and were flying to London to go shopping. That's amazing. So what happened next? I mean, so Thailand, there's Malaysia. Uh, uh, Malcolm, you have a timeline, right? Why don't you just run through that timeline? 
Let me rattle through it. Let, actually, let me go back one step because we've missed what what this is all about, and this is this rapid reversal of capital flows. Money had been flowing into these tiger economies. All of a sudden, it went the other way, and it hurt the economies big time. So July 2 is where it started. That was where the, the spark lit and the powder keg blew up. That was the devaluation that Lee just spoke of. Uh, some days later, the Philippine peso was devalued. We didn't see huge well, we saw implications, but not to the extent that some of the other economies that followed. Indonesia widened its trading band soon after. Then we had it eventually abandoning its trading band, allowing the currency to float freely in August, mid-August, and predictably it collapsed. Hong Kong's stock market was hit in October. There was uh, speculative attacks on the Hong Kong dollar peg. It endured and lasts still to today. Uh, but into October, then South Korea's won began to weaken. We had the IMF loan packages start to unfold from Thailand and uh, Indonesia, but it got very nasty for South Korea towards the end of 1997, uh, South Korea having to request IMF aid, the one weakening throughout. The IMF in December, early December, approved the $57 billion bailout package for South Korea. And then into January, it really swung back to Indonesia. The rupiah was in free fall then, really nosediving. It lost as much as uh, more than 80% of its value. Uh, the shelves were, were bare and people were stacking up protests through the streets among students. And of course, uh, then less than a year after the, uh, the first onset of that crisis, we had the departure of Suharto after 32 years in power in May 21. Of 1998. Yeah, that's a very good point. And as compelling as some of these economic and financial superlatives are, let's not forget in some instances what resulted from this economic crisis was nothing short of a revolution. Uh, yes, it did force Suharto to stand down. We thought that was inconceivable at one point. Uh, in Korea, it ultimately meant the election of the first opposition president. Now in Korea, presidency changes hands between parties pretty regularly and no one cares. Big thing back then. And Indonesia now, still, after a tumultuous, wrenching period, has regained its place as Southeast Asia's leading economy, the leading economy of ASEAN, and it is a vibrant, uh, rambunctious democracy. Who'd have thought? We thought the Asian way, quote unquote, was the way. They had it right. The West was in decline. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. And there's some images that spring to mind during that whole period of bailouts. Uh, Lee, you remember um, the IMF delegation staying in Bangkok. Where were they staying? 
Oh, they were staying. Well, it was, it was actually called the Oriental Hotel at that time, but it was part of the Mandarin Oriental chain. And every year, the Oriental would win either the best hotel in the world or the second best hotel in the world. And I, if I, you'll give me a moment to tell a, a story because the IMF came in and uh, they browbeat governments to slash their spending, which, you know, maybe in retrospect was what they, uh, the opposite of what they should have been doing. And I remember going to the, the hotel for a press conference and the IMF chief, Michel Camdesu, who was this towering Sorbonne educated economist, and he made it clear that he was, you know, sort of the financial overlord in Asia to help get all these uh, governments together. And, and put their financing back together. And, um, you know, the, the IMF brought in dozens and dozens of senior bankers to, to uh, sort of look over the shoulders of the different uh, countries. And they were staying at the Mandarin Oriental in Bangkok. So Kamdesu came in, and uh, I, I couldn't resist. I had to ask him, I said, why is your entire team of – bankers staying at the most expensive hotel in Bangkok. And he kind of got all upset and he responded that uh, professional bankers need certain standards of living to complete their mission. (laughs) Dan, you remember a moment too, right? Yeah, it's fair to say the IMF's PR operation in those days was not as sophisticated as it is now. For me, the great moment was watching the same Michel Kamdesu standing over Sahato on national and international television with his arms folded while Sahato sat hunched at the table signing the agreement. Uh, several commentators said at the time he looks like a Dutch colonial plantation owner. Now, it's inconceivable that Christine Lagarde would say what was said to Lee and have the body language uh, that transpired in Jakarta inconceivable. So, you know, the lenders have changed significantly as well. It's an interesting point because the whole austerity versus uh, bailout debate, of course, that we saw through the European crisis most recently started back then, back in January of 1998, before the worst of the crisis was even upon Indonesia, already Joseph Stiglitz then uh, chief economist of the World Bank was already questioning the sort of uh, Washington consensus view and some of the prescriptions that were being uh, put in place during that time. That's right. And the bank didn't thank him for it either. Well, it begs the question, have we learned anything? Did we learn anything from Asia through the latest uh, crisis in Europe? We've got the world banking community still employing the same prescriptions that didn't really work that well 20 years ago. Well, you know, Alec, during the global financial crisis that followed a decade later, there was a very interesting moment at a press conference in Washington where Dominique Strauss-Kahn, one of Kahn-Basu's successors at the IMF, talked about fiscal expansion being the way to go. The economies in crisis needed to spend much, much more. And that really was seen as a Nixon goes to China moment. Dan, the IMF, I think it was last year, published a bit of a mea culpa paper which acknowledged some of the mistakes of that uh, period. And the uh, certainly you could say the austerity first 
uh, response has changed, although some people in Greece may uh, argue differently. I was going to say, right? You know, something else in retrospect, uh, there were many predictions that China would actually allow its currency to loosen. Instead, it kept the peg, that's the yuan's formal tie to the dollar, intact throughout this period. And, you know, China's economy was much, much smaller then than it is now. But looking back, was that the first real sign of China leading, if not the region, then at least the world? It certainly was a move that did help stem the contagion that uh, at, at certain times there must have felt like it was never ending. The fact that they didn't devalue to maintain their export competitiveness. But remember then, China was only just becoming the export powerhouse than it, uh, that it is today. But that, as we look back 20 years on from the crisis, is the moment where China took a notable global step that contributed to the stability of the world. And to see how just how important that yuan anchor is to developing markets. You only have to look back now two years to mid-2015, where there was that decision to slightly free up the yuan, not a free float, just a slight change to the, to the mechanism. It only moved 1.7% on the day, remember, in mid-2015, and global markets went haywire. So that in itself shows just how important the yuan anchor is today, and it all started 20 years earlier. If you want an indication of where China is today, it was just this month that uh, MSCI put the uh, domestic Chinese stock market in its indexes. The uh, the A-share market was now considered to be one of the world's biggest stock markets. Lee, I'm wondering if this episode that we're discussing here is also a lesson, and a lesson we all needed in retrospect, about the impermanence of perceptions and of grand modeling. You know, we said at the start of this program, this is very much the era of the Asian tiger, the Asian way they had it all figured out. The West was in decline. By the end of 1998, the tables were turned and the West was again in the ascendancy. And that's highly arguable again today. Is that what's really happening here? This was about the death of perception. Well, I don't think that... Uh it's really about the perception. I think that it's more about history repeating itself. I mean, uh, 1997 was a crisis. 2008 was a, was a crisis. We, if you want to look at Greece and as sort of an ongoing crisis, I don't. I think that uh, economically, no matter what we have in place, uh, we're we're going to see some of these crises happen. And once they happen, uh, there's a contagion to it. Should we also be careful about constructing grand paradigms about the era in which we live? I certainly think that that's a that's a case. I mean, that's um, especially when you're living through it. It's hard to have a grand perception of it. Maybe that's what you know. Per, historians can do fifty years from now, or fifty years, uh, or a hundred years from now. But it's awfully, awfully hard. And and you know, we we were all on the firing line as journalists when things were happening so fast. And now things happen even faster because back then there really was very little internet. There was very little email traffic uh, that went on. There was no Twitter or anything. So, um, you know, when you're at ground zero of an event happening, it's very hard to have a wide perspective. 
Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. And let us know what you thought of the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Moss underscore Eco. Alec. ADB McSee. And Mal. Malcolm Scott 8. Lee. Oh, I'm old world. I don't, I don't use Twitter. <laughs> Talk about the absence of a new paradigm. Benchmark is produced by Sarah Patterson. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is the same Alec McCabe. Thanks for listening. Next time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.